thank you for downloading this podcast from Gaimere Baptist Church. You can find out more about our church at our website, gaimerebaptist.org.au. May God speak to you as you listen. Micah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Galal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with the calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of your soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Thank you, Sam, and uh, good evening. Welcome to the launch of May Mission Month and uh, an opportunity to have a look at a relatively popular passage at this time of year. When you're talking about social justice concerns, nothing's better than Micah 6.8. You may not be familiar with the rest of the passage, but you've probably heard that before. I should probably say I have preached on this before, and I have preached on it before in May, so if it sounds vaguely familiar, you might go, ah, Uh, although no one said that it sounded familiar this morning, so I don't know what that means. Uh, I'm unapologetic about it, uh, because I think that there's a really significant challenge for us out of these passages that I think we need to take quite seriously uh, as we open uh, our uh, kind of our accounts for May. But before I do that, let me just make a couple of quick little announcements. It's nice to have the Fosters back uh, after their jaunt overseas, so welcome home. It's nice to have you here again. Um, also wanted to let you know that uh, Ryan Day, who is on staff as our worship coordinator, is on extended leave. So I don't know if you've noticed that he hasn't been around. I hope that you have. Uh, but he's on extended leave until the end of June. Uh, and uh, if you have any questions about that, by all means, hit me up. Basically, Ryan's been uh, working really hard, needed a long break. He's having a long break. Um, so that's kind of where we're up to with that. And uh, you'll hear more about that when you need to. Uh, and uh, the final thing just to remind you about is that there is a vision dinner on the 11th of May. This is probably the first vision dinner we've had, well, in in at least 20 years. An opportunity for us to have a really lovely meal, three courses, uh, three course hot meal, which would be fantastic, thus the price. Uh, And uh, an opportunity then for me to share a little bit about where I believe that God is leading us as a church and about your role in that as well. Uh, If you're thinking who in the world gets to go to a vision dinner, the answer is anyone who feels committed enough to the life of the church to want to know. Uh, So if you would like to come along to that, consider yourself invited. Uh, The one thing I do need to let you know about is because it's catered, uh, we do need to have numbers sorted out pretty quickly. So if you have not yet registered for that, if you can do so by the close of business tomorrow, that would be incredibly helpful uh, so that we are adequately prepared for that. 
Well, as I said, this passage in Micah chapter 6 is a fairly well-known one, at least the eighth verse. He has shown you, O man, or he has shown you, O people, or he has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. But actually, the context of this passage is actually significant for us as well. Uh, for those of you who have done any communicating, you know the importance of tone. You've got to get your tone right when you're communicating things, lest you be seriously misunderstood. So in oral communication, when you can see my face and my body language, there are a whole bunch of clues to, the, to how I'm feeling and the mood in which I'm speaking. But you never want someone to think that you're joking when you're serious or serious when you're joking. Uh, I don't know if you know anybody with a really, really dry sense of humor. I love the dry sense of humor, except when it's so dry I cannot tell if they're joking. Uh, then I find it really difficult. It's just hard to kind of communicate clearly. Now, when you're uh, writing, in terms of you know, writing a long email or whatever it might be, you have to kind of do things a little bit differently, don't you? Because you can't rely on the tone of voice. I tell my preaching students uh, that uh, if you want to work on your volume or your pitch or your pace, you really need to work out what your tone is because everything else comes from that. So if I tell you that your mother is speaking at a high volume, at a high pace and a high pitch, guess how she's feeling? Uh, she's probably used your full name as well uh, to let you know the serious trouble that you are in. But when you're writing, you don't have those, those nonverbal clues. You don't kind of hear how people are saying things. And if you've ever tried to write one of those really kind of carefully crafted emails, they take hours. Uh, and generally speaking, what you're trying to do is clarify. This is what I mean. I don't mean these things. And I certainly don't mean that. This is what I mean. Uh, if uh, you're uh, used to more simple forms of communication, the, the short email or the text message, either typing with your fingers or your thumbs, uh, we have now the emoji, which helps us with tone, doesn't it? You know, I make a comment and then I put a little smiley face, and you know that I'm, well, at least I want you to think that I'm smiling, even if I'm not really smiling, or it's a little winky face or an angry face or whatever it might be, to try to kind of convey some of the tone. We don't yet have an emoji version of the Bible, which is probably just as well, because I think it would be fraught with uh, interpretational peril, but it would be helpful from time to time if you could kind of know the tone of a passage, because the tone is important in communication, and this is communication. So I want to kind of explore simply the context of Micah 6 in order that we can kind of pick the tone, which then I think changes the way in which we understand that last and most important verse within that. So if you have your Bibles, whether you've gone and grabbed one because uh, you, you kind of ignored Pete, uh, or you got one during the, the break, or whatever it might be, or you've got one on your phone, have a look at Micah 6. And I want to just very briefly explore this context. So you may have picked this up as Sam read it for us, but he says, listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He's lodging a charge against Israel. Now, I, 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 some of you are too young to have a relationship have gone so bad that it had to end up in court. But I don't have to tell you that if a relationship ends up in court, that things are not going well, are they? 
Uh, it's gone past the stage where I can say, oh, I'm sorry. It's gone past the stage where we can have a cup of coffee and sort things out. It's gone past the stage where your friend talks to me and my friend talks to you and we kind of work out and broker some agreement. This has gone to the point where you need to call in the lawyers, you need to call in the judges, you need to call in a jury. That's how bad the situation has become. God has called in the big guns. He's called in creation to bear witness uh, to how his people have mistreated him. So when the Lord speaks here, he's not just kind of having a casual statement. He is, shall we say, exasperated. He is at the point where it seems he cannot get his people to listen any other way than to haul them into court and kind of sound off. So when the Lord speaks in chapter 6, what we are hearing is an exasperated parent, shall we say. He says, my people, how, what, sorry, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? How have I made your life so difficult that we can't seem to get anywhere here? Uh, God is not asking kind of a simple question of, oh, so by the way, um, how have I burdened you? He's at the end of his tether. How in the world have I made your life so difficult? Why is it that the things I've asked you to do are so impossible for you? For those of you who've had these sorts of arguments with your parents, this might sound vaguely familiar, right? I clothe you, I fed you, I paid for your education, and now I ask you to vacuum your room, and, right? It's that kind of exasperation, except at a legal level, right, with the mountains sitting in the jury. So that kind of gives you the scope for what we're talking about here. Well, how do you think the people of Israel respond? In verse 6, you, you hear the people speak. And at one level, it could be a genuine question, couldn't it? A genuine question that a worshiper might ask. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? No, I really want to know. But given the context, there's the court scene. God has just said, how have I made your life so difficult? How do you think the people of Israel are responding here? What's their tone? Let me suggest a simple paraphrase. If I could paraphrase verse 6, it would be this. What in the world do you want from us? Let me guess. Do you want more burnt offerings? You know, calves a year old, which, as an aside, is a very expensive offering. You have a calf, you just feed it and care for it and tend it. It's not old enough to make more cows or to produce milk. And then to give it as a burnt offering to the Lord, the whole thing was given over to God. Everything was burnt. Other sacrifices, at least you got some of the meat and you could have a party with your friends. No, everything was given over. It's a very expensive gift. Is that what you want? Do you just want more burnt offerings? Or how about a thousand rams? How about that? Like when Solomon dedicated the temple and he slaughtered herds of, of animals. Is that what you want? Some sort of over-the-top, exaggerated, just exceptional number? Do you want a river of olive oil? Is that what you're after? Oh, I know. How about I sacrifice my kids? Would that make you happy? What do you want? That's the tone. God's saying, what is so hard about this? And the people going, oh, please. That's Micah 6. Have you ever worked for someone or had a relationship with someone who seemed impossible to please? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands lest my staff put their hands up, right? <laughs> there's a number of reasons why people can be hard to please, right? Sometimes it's because they just don't like you and they want to make your life miserable. I don't think that's the situation here with God, though, is it? 
He's not, he, he's, not, he's not trying to make their life miserable by any stretch of the imagination. The Lord, Yahweh, is the God of Israel. He's their God. He's not the God of Egypt. He's not the God of Assyria. He's the God of Israel. And as it was his responsibility to provide for them, to care for them, to, to keep, um, the, keep them uh, prosperous and at peace. It's not that. Another reason, though, why sometimes people uh, are often uh, difficult and hard to please is because they're what's known as capricious. They're unpredictable. You can never tell what standard it's going to be. So one day you come into work or whatever it might be, and, and they just love you. Everything you do is fantastic. And the next day you do the exact same thing, and it's nowhere near good enough. And their unpredictability, the standard changes so frequently that you just can't figure yourself out. And sometimes the gods in the ancient world were thought of as capricious. You never knew what side of the bed the god would wake up on. Well, is that the portrait of the Lord? Not really. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, forever. Which is not so much a philosophical statement of immutability, if you want to get all theological. It's a statement of his consistency. He's, he's the same. He reacts the same. In fact, that's the whole basis of Micah's response. You see, because Micah has framed this whole thing up for us, hasn't he? And Micah is not sitting in a little courtroom kind of doing sketches of the mountains and then writing down exactly what God says. He's framed this whole thing up. He's created it. He's trying to, trying to break through the people of Israel's hearts and say, this is what your relationship with God is like. God is exasperated with you, and you respond in like kind. And then when the people have asked, what in the world do you want? Micah brings out verse 8, doesn't he? He has shown you. This is not, this is not new. This is not breaking news. This is not some unpredictable side of the Lord that you've never heard of. He's already shown you. And what does he require? Well, that you, that you act justly, that you, you love mercy, that, that you walk humbly with your God. It's, he's been saying it for centuries. That's what the Lord requires. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that Micah, when he frames up this imaginative scene, when he tries to break through the hard-heartedness and the, the dull ears of the people, that he frames this up, but the people begin with sacrifices and offerings. Did you notice that? What do you want from us? And then they immediately jump to burnt offerings, thousands of rams and sacrifices, olive oil, which was often poured out before the Lord, although in smaller quantities than rivers. Right? Child sacrifice was an abomination to the Lord always and in every time and every period. But they start with offerings. Now, Micah wrote in the 8th century B.C., the 700s B.C. You probably don't know very much about that time period. It was 2,700 years ago, so fair enough. We don't know heaps about that time, but we do know kind of a couple of really significant things about Jerusalem in and around this time. During the 7th century, there was an almost unprecedented period of peace. Uh, in, in, in a region that, it's, I mean, they've been at war for a long time in the Middle East. There was always war, it seemed. And in the 7th century, in the 8th century rather, there was this period of peace. 
And when there's peace and stuff isn't getting knocked down and torn down and blown up, although they didn't have explosives back then, but you follow the imagery, you can actually establish things. And peace brings up economic prosperity. And the people of Jerusalem were doing better than they had for generations. And one of the things that seems to have been booming was temple worship. In the temple of the Lord that Solomon had built on the plans that David had established, in that temple and according to the law of Moses were all the sacrifices and offerings. They they had it all. They did the daily sacrifices. They did the new moon festivals. They they had the sacrifices for sins and for, uh, for guilt and for thanksgiving. It was all going on. There were priests and prophets galore. It was, it was all happening. And the people start there. Did you notice where God starts? God starts in a completely different place, doesn't he? He actually goes back and recounts for them the things that he has done for them. Now, granted, by the time Micah was writing, these events were actually four or five hundred years before, but essentially they are the stereotypical model events, the things that God has done, kind of how we would talk about what Jesus has done for us on the cross, that everything that God does for us in the specifics of our lives kind of comes out of that out of God's love and faithfulness and self-sacrifice and power. And so we can talk about all that God has done for us on the cross, even though it was 2,000 years ago. The same thing is true here. God recounts the great things He's done. He says, "I, I rescued you out of Egypt. I redeemed you out of slavery. I gave you great leadership in Moses and Aaron and Miriam. He says, he says, I turned the curse into a blessing. When you came out of Egypt, the king of Moab by the name of Balak saw you all, was freaked out, hired a sorcerer to curse you by the name of Balaam. And whenever Balaam went to open his mouth to curse you, I turned it into a blessing, and you never even knew about the danger. He says, don't you remember that I was with you in their journey from one of the most unfortunately named places in the entire Bible to Gilgal, the journey into the promised land where God was faithful to his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to bring their people into the land of Canaan. This is where the Lord begins. He begins with his acts of grace. Because the, the, the rescue from Exodus, uh, sorry, the, 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 the rescue from Egypt, known as the Exodus, came before the law was given, which is really important. It's really important. It's too often we think that the Old Testament is all about laws and rules and do's and don'ts. And yet, that all came after God rescued his people. Moses didn't show up into Egypt and say, Hey, Israel, I know you're enslaved. I know that's a real drag. But guess what? I found a God. He's out in the wilderness. He's real good. Uh, you'll love him. Uh, and uh, if we just obey some of these commandments he gave me, if we kind of get a passing grade on this stuff, he said he'd come and rescue us. How good is that? That's not what happens at all, is it? Moses is sent to Egypt and he says, The Lord has heard your cries and has remembered his promise to Abraham, and he's come to rescue you. And only after they've been rescued is the law given. You see, and here's, I think, where the challenge comes. Because the people of Israel respond as we so often respond as well. It is so easy to substitute 
performance for faithfulness. Performance for faithfulness. That what we end up saying to God is, what do you want? We've ticked all the boxes. I, like I went to church two weeks in a row. I've read my Bible a couple times this week. I prayed a few times. I shared my faith with my friends. I gave them a Bible. What do you want? We substitute performance, a bunch of stuff we do, for faithfulness. Now, here's the challenge at May. As Jordy said, uh, nobody, uh, we finally kind of, when the dust settles on May, it's usually the 16th of June, much to the chagrin of the Mission Action Group who would like it to be done a lot earlier. But nonetheless, when the dust settles on May this year, if you come to me and said, it was May a success, we generally have three indicators of success. One is, have we met all of our targets? Did we raise the $13,000 for Christian surfers in the Gromit's Guide to God? Uh, did we raise the 41000 for love mercy? And, and, and kind of on and on it goes, right? Did we exceed our targets? If we did, well, that's a big tick. Secondly, though, we ask that our giving to May be over and above what you might normally give on a Sunday. So did our offerings dip? You know, did we exceed our, uh, our, our target, but our offerings went down? If our offerings remain about the same, then that's another big tick because that means our giving has come over and above. That's fantastic. And the third thing that we look for is how many people gave. If we meet our target, but only 50 people give to it, well, that's not great. That suggests that most people didn't give at all. So if we get to June 16th and we've exceeded our targets and our offerings have remained pretty constant and we have 300 people give, it's a success. But it is so easy for us to make that the mark of a successful May and never allow anything to change on the inside. It's so easy to substitute performance for faithfulness. And God doesn't want your money. He doesn't want your money. He doesn't want just those things. He has shown us what He wants. And what does He want? He wants us to act justly. It's the same thing he's always wanted. And he wants us to act justly because we care about justice. He wants us to love mercy. Not just kind of ascribe to it and tick a box and say, oh yeah, I gave to something like that. No, to love mercy. And to walk humbly with God. For May to be a success for us, it's not enough to exceed our targets, to keep our offerings level, to have more people involved the end of May, when all the dust settles on the giving and all the receipts have gone out, will we be a people who love mercy? Will we be a people who act justly? Will we be a people who walk humbly with God? Because it's so much easier to give 10, 20, 50 bucks, 100 bucks, 1,000 bucks, so much easier to do that than to allow God to be changing us from the inside. It's so much easier to look like we're generous than become generous. But God has been generous to us in order that we might be generous to those around us. And it's interesting to me that when God accuses His people, we might think that God has these kind of impossible standards. You know, be holy as I am holy. Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And you think, oh, I can't get there. But God comes to his people and doesn't say, I have a case against you. Why aren't you perfect yet? He doesn't come to his people and say, why aren't you holy as I am holy? 
God's concern ultimately is that we become perfect, that we become holy. But his accusation is you are responding with ingratitude and you've substituted performance for the faithfulness that I require. We are faced with a challenge, and we're faced with this every May. Are we just going to give? Or are we going to allow the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us through faith in Christ, are we going to allow the Spirit to completely transform us, to make us more and more like the person of Jesus? So can I invite you to participate in May this year? Do listen to all of the projects. Do pray for the projects and for our missionaries. Do consider how you will give and the amount that you will give and, uh, and listen to the prompting and leaning of the Spirit. But in the midst of all of that, can I challenge you as well to be praying that the Holy Spirit makes us into a people who do love mercy, who want to act justly in everything and who have learned what it means in just one or two ways, what it means to walk humbly with our God. This is our challenge for May. And so I'd ask you and invite you to join me in it, that we might be those who are changed from the inside. So in a moment, I'm going to invite uh, Dave and the, and the team to come and lead us in a time of response. And as they do, I'd like to invite you to join me in prayer uh, before we sing together. So will you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you that... Uh, we thank you that grace always comes first with you. We thank you that you saved us before we had done anything worth saving. That while we were still your enemies, you saved us. We thank you for that wonderful, amazing grace at work in our lives. And want to recognize again that all of the, the law is not meant to be some sort of... Um, way to climb to you, but is meant to be a reflection of our relationship with you in Christ Jesus. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would keep us, particularly this May, from substituting performance for faithfulness. We do pray that we would be able to exceed our targets, that many people around the world would be blessed because of our generosity, but we pray that our generosity would come from truly generous hearts, that we would be people who do not just tick boxes and fulfill our obligations, but that we would become people more and more who act justly, who love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.